The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hello and welcome to Out of Office. I'm your host, Malika Kapoor. My guest today is an icon, an inspiration. Her name is Erin Brockovich. After years of fighting for water safety, her name has now become a verb. So I asked Erin, what does it mean to Erin Brockovich something? That you're going to discover yourself and you're going to rise up and you're going to stand up and you, you can be heard. Erin's voice has been heard around the world. She became a household name after the Hollywood blockbuster Erin Brockovich chronicled her successful fight against the energy giant PG&E that had contaminated the groundwater in Hinkley, California. Twenty years on, she says not enough has been done to tackle water safety, and she addresses that in her newly released book called Superman's Not Coming, The National Water Crisis and What We the People Can Do About It. Maybe we've felt that our agencies were in fact Superman. They're not coming. From her dad, she inherited something else, a love of water. I know he saw things that got into my head about water. He'd sing me songs, watch the water trickling down the stream, enjoy it today, for someday it might not be seen. We talked about family, about her connection with nature and water, about activism, and of course, the movie. Here's my conversation with Erin Brockovich. Erin, welcome to Out of Office. Hi, it's nice to be it's, here. It's great to see you. It's, uh, you know, I've been reading about you for years and of course I've seen the movie, so it's wonderful to be speaking to, um, to a legend. That's well, nice of you to say, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I am so about the we and the collective mm -hmm. and it becomes my work is such a labor of love um, and that takes mm -hmm. many of us. Now, you shot to fame overnight, pretty much, you know, with the release of the movie, Erin Brockovich, and it's been around 20 years. How did your life change after that? You know, it changed a lot. It has been just of late that I think, you know, hindsight, you can kind of look back and go, what happened? Because it happened so fast and I got thrown into something that I didn't plan for in life or necessarily dream of in life. And I just went. I think I really learned to just go. And now, well, my gosh, there's so many reasons now why I'm reflecting. I mean, I started when I was 30. I'm now 60. My kids are grown and gone. And I'm now a grandmother of four. So I really look, <laughs> I really look yeah. back on what happened. It was exciting. It was overwhelming. I'm glad for it in, in, in every way possible because it was such a platform. I think it was an awakening moment. I certainly didn't realize that after that film that Hinkley would just be like a microcosm and it was happening everywhere in the U.S. 
and globally. And to be able to look back and see the work we've done and to think how far we've come, but not really, because we're still having this conversation in 2020 and it's not better, it's actually worse. That was going to be my follow-up question, which is 20 years on, are we taking water safety more seriously? Has anything really improved? No, uh, it hasn't. And there's so many issues that are going on. I mean, we could just start with our infrastructure, and we, we know we have an issue with that, and we just kind of keep kicking the can down the road. So we're treating water at our municipalities that's making the infrastructure deteriorate further. We have how we're treating the water, which creates, well, unfortunately, we're seeing a situation play out in Texas with a brain-eating amoeba. And I, and I have to kind of explain what that's all about, but at the municipal level, how we're treating the water because we're trying to shortcut the Safe Drinking Water Act. We are mm -hmm. actually creating legionnaire outbreaks and brain-eating amoebas and could be killing people. And then we deal with industrial pollution. And none of it's really been fixed or addressed. And again, kicking the can down the road has created double the problems. Where exactly are we failing? In my 20 plus years doing this, I can get a clear picture just on the ground. We've got to put safety and infrastructure and people ahead of the dollar. And there's this idea that if you don't, we don't make money. That's not true. That's not going to be true. So water 101 is we get most of our water from surface water. Yes, we get it from aquifers as well. It can be blended. It depends on the time of the year, if you're in a drought condition, etc. But most water comes from rivers, creeks, tributaries. Well, when that water comes in, it contains organic matter. Organic matter is simply dirt. We need to clean the dirt out of the water. So we add chlorine to help ensure that we don't have E. coli and these types of outbreaks. What people don't know is when chlorine and dirt meet, it creates a toxic compound called trihalomethanes, which is very monitored and regulated by the Safe Drinking Water Act. The intention of the Safe Drinking Water Act is very good. But see, here's what we do. We don't like to follow that, and we want to cheat the rule because it's cheaper for them instead of adding the right filtration. So the Safe Drinking Water Act says when you can't balance your THMs, you must use the appropriate filtrations. Well, guess what? That can get expensive. So there's a loophole in there that allows them to do that, bypass the system, and throw in ammonia. So when you throw in ammonia, you create another reaction in the water. So the ammonia can render chlorination less effective. And it's also very caustic to the distribution system because if you have lead pipes 
It causes all the lead in the iron to leach itself out. And here we have lead contamination. No, it's one thing after another. Correct. And then we have a Band-Aid because we know we've got a problem with the ammonia. Now we add phosphorus, phosphates. And now we've created another reaction in the water. And what we've done very basically is create a feeding frenzy of biofilm. And that's where all these pathogens grow. So here in Houston, down, not in Houston, Texas, it's south of Houston, it's the Brazino County area, closer to Freeport, they had a six-year-old die from brain-eating amoeba. It's in the municipal system. How did it get in there? Because we're not treating our water correctly on the upfront. I see there is such a better way to do business mm-hmm. on the upfront. Do what the Safe Drinking Water Act and its intentions were. Appropriate filtration, even if it costs you more money. It's way too expensive at the end of this journey, A, when you get sued and you pay out. But the greatest expense comes, we lose lives. Legionella, these brain-eating amoebas, they are deadly. And you've damaged our water. So that's what I really learned, that instead of kicking the can down the road, if companies would take some of that money and reinvest in themselves for safety and infrastructure with the intention of clean water and safety and protection of public health and welfare first, we'd be getting ahead of the game. So we're following this old adage or this old idea that to do that, it's better for the company because if we play right, we're not going to make money. I I think it's so ass backwards and Mm -hmm. we can change that, but Mm -hmm. we won't. How do you stay motivated? You're so passionate about water safety and yet what you've just outlined to me is a really gloomy scenario. How do you stay motivated to do the job that you do? The people, we, we get in there and we helped educate them. You know, knowledge is power. And then when they find out, and it's oftentimes when it's in their own backyard that they rise. So I, I see the faces of the communities and I'm inspired because I want to help them. And I know that when they're activated, they, they will get involved. And so we need to not assume that some magical entity, hence my book, Superman's Not Coming, and yes, it's about the national water crisis, but it could be related to a whole lot of other subject matters, by the way. We, yes. we as a society, I don't know if we've been comfortable or complacent, and that is in no way meant to be disrespectful. I am part of society, and I look at myself. Where did I miss something? Well, did I assume that a federal oversight or a state agency or a rule or a regulation was in fact going to be followed? <laughs> because it's not. Mm-hmm. But that mm-hmm. we can take action and we can, knowledge is power, we can inform our community, we can make it our duty and our obligation to find out what's going on, to get involved at local city council level. I think there, there's this, again, idea that there's this blanket thing that's going to fix it and save it. The wizard is here. We're waking up right now, uh, and I am actually more hopeful in this moment 
you may think I'm crazy saying this, than I've been in my entire career. Because I think that we're seeing things that for one reason or another we haven't wanted to see before. And when you wake up, that's where knowledge is power. That's where the education, meaning you'll learn about something that's happening, that you realize, I'm going to have to get involved here. And at a local level, and we share this in my new book, Community After Community, you can clearly see how they have affected change. So I think of it as if every community in every town or city in every single state got to their own municipality, got to their own city council, and they made the changes and the permits and the requirements right at that level different, and you lit that up across the United States, you'd actually make change. And, and that's yeah. what keeps me helpful is, is seeing the people to see them rise. You know, I think of this all the time as like a Super Bowl. You know, we all love those events. And when you see them, they're like, oh, they figured it out. They got the ball. They ran. You're just like, yes, go. And that's what keeps me going. I love the title of your new book, Superman's Not Coming. It says so much, especially in the context of water safety, climate change. Walk me through how you came up with the title and what exactly in your mind you wanted the title to convey, Superman's Not Coming. It's disappointing, isn't it? It's a sock in the gut. I've watched the people of Hinckley get socked in the gut, actually believing that PG&E would tell them the truth. I've seen Flint, Michigan, the sock in their gut to actually think <laughs> that your municipality would have your back or your leaders. And I think of everyone that has lost their homes in these fires the sock in the gut. What? Listen, this is where I learned to drop a whole lot of F-bombs, and I won't do it today, but I'm like, WTF? And I realized maybe we felt that our agencies were, in fact, Superman. But I've seen that they are absent and for a, a lot of reasons. Um, lack of information, you know, lack of transparency, fear, greed over everything else, that they're not coming. So I started many years ago saying to people, Superman's not coming, but here's the thing. We're here. We can begin to do something. And I also learned, and this is always kind of the lighthearted side of it <laughs> in my life, Prince Charming's not coming either. So it's about waking up, that we need to believe in ourselves again. And I, I see that missing everywhere. I'm a little more sensitive. I don't think I'm a little more sensitive to it. I might have been a little more prepared or a little more awake, uh, awaken. You know, what's the new thing? Woke now? I mean, <laughs> because I'm a dyslexic. So my whole life I was put in a box and I was labeled and judged and perceived and always underestimated. And I think that there's a bigger system out there that underestimates the people very often. But we also hear, you're not this, you're not that, you're not a scientist, you're not a doctor, you know, what do you know? That happened to me in Hinkley. And I'm like, okay, well, this is familiar because I went through an educational system because I think different. Therefore, what do you know? Go over here. And right. I'm like, oh no, this is way too familiar. Well, let me say this about that. I don't have to be anything to be a human. 
and to tell you what I see, which is two-headed frogs, green water, the ecosystem being destroyed and devastated right before my eyes to tell you this is wrong and I'm going to find out and we're going to fight. And that is what I see missing in communities. And for me, back to why I keep, what keeps me going, you can see the light bulb come on for them. And I think a lot of light bulbs are going off. That becomes, yes. And um, it's challenging. It's empowering to know that we can change the course. Mm -hmm. But we can't until we wake up. And until we can actually see for ourselves, mm, there is no wizard. But like you've shown the world, you know, a single person can make a difference. And now Erin Brockovich has become a verb. People, people, Erin Brockovich, their way through through challenging situations. You know, and I, I, I'm, I'm really conscientious of that right now. Um, What does it mean to you? What is your interpretation of this when, when you hear that Erin Brockovich has become a verb? What does that mean? That you're going to discover yourself and you're going to rise up and you're going to stand up and you, you can be heard. That for me, it's self-empowerment. You'll, you'll have the stick-to-itiveness, my favorite word. And, and that comes from your parents. That comes from my mom and that comes from my being dyslexic and my being constantly defeated and my mom would always come in and say you know when the going gets tough the tough get going we've all heard that and she one day said you got to have your stick-to-itiveness not knowing what that meant I questioned her so she brought in the dictionary and read me the definition and I never forgot it noun propensity to follow through in a determined manner dogged persistence born of obligation and stubbornness. And I thought, okay, wow, that was really powerful. I never forgot it. But she also <laughs> taught me, we're not necessarily born with stick to You have to develop the habit of persevering even when you don't want to. And it would be easier to give up. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. I know your mom had a huge influence on your life, but your dad did too, right? Oh, my dad. So my dad was a mechanical engineer. He built pipelines. I mean, and he ran pipelines for Citigroup all across Oklahoma and into Kansas. He was the very one, I know he saw things, that got into my head about water. He'd sing me songs 
watch the water trickling down the stream, enjoy it today, for someday it might not be seen. I could cry every time I think about it. He saw something. He was imparting a message to me. And I became very connected to, to that. And my dad taught me a very valuable lesson that I didn't like to learn when I was about 17, 16, 17. Um, I skipped school, told a huge lie. He caught me. I got grounded for an entire school semester. But nothing bothered my father more than a lie because it creates disrespect. It creates distrust. It takes a long time to rebuild that. And the lack of transparency and the ability to be honest with each other, it breaks down the system. Sometimes I sit here and I look today, that's where we are. And is that why a system broke down? And how do we rebuild that? And so my mom and my dad were unbelievable influences in my life. Tell me a little bit about your childhood. I know you're the youngest of four children. You grew up in Kansas. As a little girl, you know, what were your dreams, your ambition? What did you think you would grow up to become or to do? I loved being outside. Now, there's a couple of things that will come to my mind. First of all, I'm a, I'm a human radar for a whole lot of stuff. And people will tell <laughs> you this. If my mom were still alive, she'd say, Aaron will know things a day or an hours before anyone else. I love the creeks. I love hiking. I love seeing the little animals. I just loved it. I still do. I like to watch the sunset and I was fascinated with cloud formation because we're so disconnected from the environment, but we are the environment. The environment is yeah. us. And um, I could tell you good 14 hours ahead of time before the weather report would tell you we're going to have tornadoes. The air pressure is oppressive. Uh, the barometric pressure lowers. The cloud formations happen. The stillness, all of that, something's going to happen. You can feel the humidity, right? You can feel dry air. You can feel barometric pressures. They're heavier. You can feel the change. Observation. Well, those are getting to be some pretty big thunderheads. So you can kind of start <laughs> thinking, yeah. And I tend to be always plan B. So because of my dyslexia, you always put me in a box. I always had another plan on how I'm going to get out of that. So I will observe a lot of things that happen to me. Uh, my mom was here for a couple of our really big earthquakes, the Northridge quake, which in the mm -hmm. 90s, which was huge, uh, deadly. I knew the night before. So around midnight, and the earthquake happened about 4.34 a.m., I was up and my mom was visiting. She came in, she goes, why are you still up? I'm like, ah, I'm very agitated. And she's like, why? You know, and I had just moved. She said, maybe you're overwhelmed. I'm like, nope, nope, nope. I can feel it. I can feel it. And I said, something's not right. And I just kept doing that. Energies come through the ground. Earthquakes, you know, even little rumblings move out energy. And um, she said, you need to try to go to sleep. And I'm like, mm, no. And my son, by the way, is very much like me. And so... I was wrestling around about four o'clock. I'm like, what, where's Matt? And he said he was really restless. He was kind of just watching TV. Right about the time I left, boom, it hit. We are energy. 
earthquakes are energy. Tornadoes are energy. You know, when I was doing the BP oil spill, the fishermen, they really knew more than anybody else. See, they own those waters. They're on those waters. They feel that water. They see the storms. They note the changes. And I've just, as a child, been connected to that. And it's quite powerful. You know, the other day, I'm fascinated with water. And by the mm-hmm. way, we are water, right? Yes, we are. And I think about water that has the power to carve valleys and mountains, the power to change a coastline, yet the resiliency to keep moving forward. That's us. We're water too. If we would just connect again, we'd find that strength, that resiliency, that ability. And I'm fascinated by it. I'm connected to the environment. Earlier, you said that it may sound sound crazy, but at this moment in time, you're actually very hopeful. What makes you hopeful and what is your biggest hope for this generation? That we, we just don't become, stay complacent. I think we got quiet for a while. Everything was good. And, and that worries me. That law, that quiet before the storm. I can tell you it was probably coming. I have people from my keynote say, you said a year ago something was coming. Would I have known? You can feel it. But not to stay complacent, not be afraid to challenge a status quo. Everything that we've done as a society was all good and well and intended and started here. But we've evolved and we've changed over time. And we haven't changed any necessarily or looked or challenged some of our laws that that don't apply or work today or some of our policies or even a mindset so that we don't continue to stay complacent. And that's why I feel hopeful because people are and did COVID push us to that stop that we had a moment to reconnect or to go, what's going on out there? And here we are. And so, you know, it's like turbulence on an airplane. It could get rough. It's going to be uncomfortable. We will get through it, but you're going to have to navigate through the turbulence. And I, I think that's kind of where we are. And I'd, I'd rather see that than the silence. You know, I worry about my children. My father always said this about me. If Erin is quiet, still waters run deep. She's thinking something, and I'd rather her be talking to me about it. And I just think we got in a place of comfortability, and now we are waking up. And COVID may have been the one that put the hard stop on us. Now, Erin, when I was telling some friends that I was speaking to you today, a lot of excitement amongst my friends and my colleagues, and a lot of people started talking about their favorite scene from the movie. And I want to know, what's your favorite scene from the Erin Brockovich movie? Oh, my gosh. uh, (laughs) I have to giggle. It may be the 634 sexual favorite things. And here's why. Because (laughs) that was back in your face. If that's what you thought of me that I had to do to have figured it out, shame on you. 
and right back at you because the reaction was like, what? So I think for me personally, that's like, and that's what you get for making that assumption. So, you know, I'm going to play with you on that one instead of go against you. Really? Really? So there was a lot. The ending brought tears to my eyes. So we saw the film before anyone else did and before it was released with uh, Ed Masry and myself, and we each had our spouses. So Ed was really, huh? Oh, my God. My palms were sweating. (laughs) And Ed was real intent on watching Julia's part, and I was real intent on watching Ed's part. And, you know, (laughs) Ed and I would be high-fiving each other. He's like, oh, my God, you do that. Drives me crazy. And I'm like, right? But so at the end, one of my favorite lines, if that's, you know, if that's your attempt at an apology, you suck at it. (laughs) Um. So there's a couple. Uh, I love the scene with uh, Julia telling George, you know, her mathematic equation and how much money she's got in her bank account and how many, you know, here's my phone number and based on this, you're not going to call. I'm like, that was pretty cool. And you're continuing the fight and we appreciate you for that and thank you for inspiring all of us. Oh, thank you very much. I'm just so, you know, I'm so glad that that everyone's, that you... We're, we're just here to have the conversation and to be able to point out where our problems are. And I don't want, I don't want to get bogged down and just this is where the problems are and never think that we can't get past it. There has to be the motivation and the hope that we can and that challenges of oneself. That was my conversation with water safety activist and author of Superman's Not Coming, Erin Brockovich. I hope you enjoyed it. And remember, you can find more episodes of Out of Office on Apple, Spotify, the Bloomberg Terminal and Bloomberg.com. This episode was produced by Jordan Gaspare. I'm Malika Kapoor. Out of Office will be back next week. Till then, stay well. And thank you for choosing to listen to this podcast. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash radio. 